Hey, this is Pastor Ellie, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to say thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening at Bold Church, want to live stream a service, or find out when our next gathering is, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. We give it up for Pastor Russell Johnson. Come on. Let me pray for you, brother, and then just light the house on fire. Lord, we just thank you, Jesus that you prepared the speakers before the foundations of the earth, that you have anointed this man to be an Elijah in our generation. God, we are hungry, Lord, to receive from you. Speak through him. And if you believe that, everybody said? Awesome. Hey, you may be seated. And appreciate uh, being with you all uh, this evening. When Pastor Ali called me, I uh, he, he told me a little bit about the conference he said the name of our church is bold church i said say less i'm in and he said we're in southern california i said say even less i'm there and then he said you know we'll be doing this conference and and chris palmer and nate finocchio are going to be there and i said bone of my bone flesh of my flesh it sounds like my people and so uh, it, it really is a privilege uh, to be here and yeah, i love when churches are like appropriately named <clears throat> Because when you walk into a room, you know, by God's spirit, you can sense the culture of a house. Um, One thing that every failing church in America has in common is a compelling vision statement. Like if the secret to success was just figuring out what we could put on our wall. But the reality is, is like next time you walk into Walmart... They don't need a vision statement on the wall for you to pick up on their culture. You go see somebody walking around in flip-flops and pajamas and their bathrobe. and It ain't ain't even going to shock you because Walmart doesn't have to say our our vision is to mass produce things in China and sell them for really cheap here to folks who are lower income from all walks of life. You you don't have to, they don't need a vision statement on the wall to communicate that. You just walk into the room and you pick up on the culture. And if you're to, you know, walk into the fashion district and go to some of those boutiques, you, you, you don't have to see a vision statement on the wall that says if you have to ask for what the price is, you can't afford it. You just know. And I love being able to walk into a church and it's like, I don't even need to know the 14 things Bold Church wants to be. I can just sense it in the room. I can sense that y'all are presence-driven. And I, I, love, I love this terminology, presence-driven church, because I think that this is actually the new wineskin for people in our movement. You know, everybody's spirit-filled today. You know what I mean? Well, I'm spirit-filled, you spirit-filled, we're all spirit-filled, and everybody's spirit-filled. And, you know, sometimes when things become everything, they become nothing. <laughs> But the reality is, is that churches that are built for the presence of God, churches who understand the church exists primarily to glorify Jesus, and in doing so, bring people into an encounter with his presence. See, if your ecclesiology ain't right, your missiology won't be right. We got to figure out why the church exists. We got to figure out why this thing is important. Why is it important to give my time, talent, and treasure? Why is it important to invite my friends and show up and serve and help build the house of God? Because number one, you're a priest unto God. That's what the apostle Peter says. Number two, your job is to give sacrifice to him. That's what the apostle Paul says. And number three, although you are the tabernacle of the Holy Ghost, you belong to a body of believers that meets in a location, and we call that church. 
you know, so interesting in our generation, you know, people, oh, where the church ain't, it's not a building, it's not a building, it's not a building, you know. It's like every Christian who didn't want to go to church anyways, who was glad all the churches got shut down. It's like that's all they had to say during COVID when we was trying to open back up. What a church ain't a building. I'm like, listen, just because you did one quarter of community college Bible study doesn't mean that you are greater than our forefathers who laid down their lives for what we freely enjoy today. The church is a gathering of God's people for the express purpose of glorifying him. And so the question that we ask coming to church is not what I'm going to get, it's what I'm going to give. Because until I move the heart of God, how can I expect him to move the heart of me? So the Bible talks about bringing a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. Scripture says this, watch. Come and do his gates with what? Thanksgiving and praise. Which means if you don't come in with thanksgiving and praise, you're a trespasser on kingdom property. See, my primary job is to minister to his heart. Because even more than the gift, I'm after the giver. And when I get the giver, I get the gifts. <laughs> and I'll tell you this. If you get the presence, you get everything else. And if you don't get the presence, it doesn't matter what else you get. The Bible says that in his presence, there is fullness. And we're people who are made full by virtue of, of being in, in the presence of God. Now, I know what you're, you're thinking. Well, well, God is omnipresent. And so he, he, he's, he's at the Applebee's down the street. And he's at the hotel. And he's in my house. And, he's my, and that's true. God is everywhere. But the Bible speaks to the manifest presence of God. And I understand the manifest presence of God from this perspective. The God who is everywhere, watch, decides to be somewhere. It's like when you go outside and you hold up a magnifying glass to the sun. Well, the sun is everywhere. But when you hold up a magnifying glass, it takes what is everywhere and it magnifies it somewhere. Even David says this, he goes, I will magnify the Lord. Why? Because what you magnify in your spirit, you multiply through your life. And so when the body of believers comes together with the express purpose of magnifying the Lord, it multiplies his benefit in and around us. No, there's something sacred and special and holy about the regular, ongoing, localized, corporate gathering of God's people for the express purpose of worshiping him. And so we got to reframe the way that we think about church because especially in the Western culture, we are so steeped into consumerism. What can I get? And, and what's the program going to look like? And what am I going to receive? And what's the gift bag? And, you know, is the team going to sing my favorite songs? And I hope the pastor preaches on everybody else's sin, but not mine. And just, you know, what am I going to get? It's all, about, it's all about me. And the reality is, is that you and I as believers, we, we have this like sacred responsibility to understand that the center of the gospel is not self-fulfillment, it is self-denial. For unless a man deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Remember, friend, the ethic of the kingdom is upside down from the ethic of culture. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to lead, you got to serve. If you want to be great, to his increase, there has to be no end. And to your decrease, there must also be no end. And a man who seeks to save his life must first lose his life for my sake. And in doing so, he will find his life. The ethic of, of the kingdom of God is it, it is it is upside down from the parameters of Western culture. But the reality is, is that we so often don't see, the, see, see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. 
We see through the lens of us. And you know what the great tragedy of the human experience is? You take you with you wherever you go. Everywhere I go, it stinks. It's like every church I go to, nobody's friendly. so often to project onto other people the responsibility that we actually have for ourselves to develop and grow in the things of the Lord and in doing so be transformed into his image and into his likeness. Friend, this is a lifelong process. It don't matter how many degrees you get. It don't matter how long you've been in this. It don't matter how many generations go back born again in your family. No, we are lifelong involved in this iterative, transformative discipleship process by which in both big ways and small ways on a daily basis, we look more like him and less like us. And this is the goal of Christological development. And this is why the scripture speaks to the values of things that aren't very popular in our culture, things like long-suffering, we love Jesus who's the genie in the bottle just rub that bottle two or three times and out pops a miracle but can I challenge you tonight God actually doesn't owe you anything and instead you actually owe him everything and like I'm going to add my faith to yours and believe for all sorts of miracles and abundance and resource. We've seen it. This church has seen it. And I'm just here to prophesy to you tonight. This is not the last free building y'all are going to get. It's just not. God is going to give you properties all across this region. That's the type of God that we serve. Why? Because, because watch, the Holy Spirit is not intimidated by San Jose and neither are you. And that's why God can trust you with increase. Because the future belongs to the brave, not to cowards. I think sometimes in, in our lives, maybe more specifically in the charismatic tradition, it's like, man, you know, we find ourselves at times holding back our worship or our affection or our adoration from God like a hostage negotiation. I'll worship when I get my miracle. I'll worship when I get my breakthrough. But see, a sacrifice of praise is a broken and a contrite heart by which God cannot ignore because he is close to the lowly. He is close to those who are shattered in soul. God is close to those who go, I don't have any answers and I don't understand, but I still choose Jesus. And here's the reality. If we never got another miracle, God has already been so good to us that we could still give him praise for all of eternity. Why? Because in the fullness of time, God sent a man born under the law to redeem those under the law. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He picked you up out of the miry clay. The apostle John says he's translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, he has seated us in heavenly places. We have become co-laborers and co-heirs of God in Christ. You have already been given a lot. <laughs> and I think sometimes for us, it's like, well, you know, if I could just, man, if I could just get that one more thing checked off my list, if I could just get that one more miracle and that one more breakthrough, and, and I, I believe in the supernatural, we're going to contend for it tonight. I got a word for you out of the book of Acts that I believe is going to encourage you. But, but before even getting there this evening, let's not reduce our faith to a transactional God who operates like a lotto ticket to get us out of difficult circumstances. I think sometimes God rescues you out of, for sure. But I think a lot of times he develops you through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no 
evil. Why? Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He doesn't say his rod and his staff give me answers to all of my existential questions. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I want to start like a reality show called Christians Say the Darnest Things. None of you, of course, but just other Christians. You know, sometimes they'll say things like this, Chris. They'll say, hey, when I get to heaven, you know, I'm going to bring my prayer journal with me. I got a list of questions. When I see God, I'm going to find him. And I'm going to find some of the apostles, too, because I got questions. You know, when I was 12, my dog ran away, and I want to know why. And when I was 14, my grandma died, and I prayed for her, and she didn't recover. I want to know why. And my parents got divorced, and that pastor had a moral failing, and I want to know why. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to march up to that throne. I'm going to have my prayer journal. I want my questions answered. Here's the reality. When you cross eternity's shores, you will stand before the one whose eyes burn like fire. And it will consume every question you've ever had in your heart. And for the rest of eternity, like the elders and angels who bow before him, you will find yourself lost in reverence to the sovereign king of the universe. Why? Because when you're in his presence... It speaks to areas of your soul that bypass the human need for understanding. It's so interesting, you know, when we're in trouble and trauma, we always quote that verse, God grant me a peace that passes my understanding. But when it's us, we like to build an altar to the things that we understand. And then oftentimes develop offenses towards the things that we don't. You remember when Jesus, I'm not even preaching yet, so just give me a minute. But when Jesus is speaking to the crowds, I love the, I love the church growth strategy of Jesus. Every time like he draws a crowd, Jesus says the most out of context, without explanation things to thin out the crowd. He get the crowds, they're all there, Jesus done all these miracles. And I'm thinking, Jesus, take an offering. Jesus, send out the text code. Get people to sign up. Announce the next thing. And, and Jesus, QR code, and Jesus gets up there and he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. No explanation, no analogy, no communion speech, nothing. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible says many desert him. And I love this. He looks at his disciples and he says, will you leave also? And they respond, where else will we go? For only you have the words of life. I can't promise you an easy life because God hasn't promised you an easy life, but I can promise you this. It is worthwhile to follow Jesus. And it will take you through seasons where you feel like you have this realm of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and understanding. And it will take you through seasons where you go, I know less today than I ever have before. But I'll tell you what, the God who is faithful on the mountain is just as faithful in the valley. And the reason why God takes you through both mountains and valleys, watch, is because there are some things that will never go developed in your life until they're developed in the valley seasons where everyone else has left, but you've clung on to him. Yeah, eight years ago, I had this idea like, man, I should plant a church. And let me tell you, ministry is is a walk in the park. It's Jurassic Park, but it's a walk in the park. And and eight years ago, we, 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 we stepped out in faith and with a credit card. And in, and in eight weeks, we, we planted a church and we started in a, in a barn 
right off of Highway 9 in a little farming town north of Seattle called Snohomish. You know, sometimes people see me dressed this way and they're like, oh, this is kind of like ironic because you're like a hipster from Seattle. I'm like, no, I'm missional. Like we are in a farming community. It's 8,500 people. It's agriculture. It's cows. Sometimes on my way to church, I kid you not, this is not a joke. This is not hyperbole. Sometimes on my way to church, I am late because I am stuck behind a horse on the road. We're in a farming town. And when we were praying about plants, and I, I, I was born and raised in Seattle, but I'd moved up north. And when we were praying about where to plant, I felt like the Lord said, you choose it and I'll bless it. And I was like, yeah, but it would be like a lot easier if you would just tell me, right? But what I've found is that the more that you grow in the Lord, there's freedom in the midst of your assignment. You know, sometimes pe people wake up in the morning and say, well, should I go to Safeway or Albertsons? Listen, God don't care. You know, sometimes what we want is we want a religious micromanaging dictator. God's like, yeah, but you're, you're, my, you're my child and you're not a baby anymore. And so what do you want? And what do you desire? And what are the things on your heart? And if you'll pick a place, I'll, I'll bless it. And I just thought to myself, God, if you did something in Snohomish, there is no way anybody could take credit for it except you. Nobody can even pronounce the city we're in. When people introduce me, if they haven't had a conversation first, they, it sounds like they get spirit filled when they try to pronounce the city I'm from. And so we started in a barn, not like a cool Pinterest barn, not like a wedding venue barn. I mean like a barn, barn. It had no indoor plumbing. It had no heat. The electrical, we had to run from extension cords to the neighbor's house. Our first service, people sat on hay bales, hay bales in the barn. Owls would fly in and out during service. Mice would come in out of service. And I just said, God, uh, if, if, if you can use me, here I am. Send me. And, 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 and that was eight years ago. And, and over the last eight years, God has opened doors that, that no man can shut. And it's true. On the other side have waited many adversaries. But God has been faithful every step of the way. When we planted, I, the church had no money. We had reverse money. We were in debt. My wife was in school. We had a four-week-old at home. We had no health insurance. We were broke as broke could be. So for the first three years of the church plan, I worked in pest control, which means that I would get in a Tyvek suit head to toe. And I'd be working underneath people's houses and crawl spaces, clearing out rats and raccoons and squirrels and mice and bed bugs and you name it. And that's how I put food on the table for the first three years. And we have this newborn and we're just trying to figure it out. And my wife is in school and we're living with her parents and nothing makes sense. And three years in, God miraculously provided for us the finances to buy our first little building. The thing was 6,000 square feet. I mean, it, it was tiny. I mean, it, it was the size of this room, max. And I remember the first time I walked in it, and I go, it's so huge. We could never fill it. God, what did we do? And we opened our services, and that was really the first time we had a facility that was even up to code. And God was faithful, and he filled it. And 
Shortly after, my wife and I found out that we was expecting a kid and super excited. And it had been a journey to, to have our, our first child. And it had been a journey to, to, to get pregnant again. And, and I never forget the Sunday morning that I was preaching. As you know, I kind of preach off my iPad. I have my notes here. And one of the things that I do now is I'm real careful. I always turn off the Wi-Fi on my iPad before I preach. Because you know if the Wi-Fi is on, you'll get text messages phone calls, FaceTime, updates. I don't want to be distracted. In those days, I just didn't have that skill or talent or, or forethought. And I, I remember in the middle of, of, of a sermon, I was teaching on enduring hardship like a good soldier. And how many of you know it's like one thing to like preach something and it's another thing to live it. <laughs> it's another thing to like walk through it. And I'm preaching and, and there's probably a hundred people in the room and you know, when you grow from like zero to a hundred, you just feel like we're the biggest church in town. We're taking over the world, you know, we had all the faith in the room and just trying to figure it out, man, we made so many mistakes in those early years. We still make them now, but God was good. He was gracious. He was kind to us. And right in the middle of my preaching, my wife is there on the front row and right in the middle of my preaching, I'm like three quarters of the way through my sermon. She'd get up and run out. And I thought to myself, I said, look, I know I'm not a great preacher, but I'm not that bad. Like, help me here. You're just running out in the middle of my sermon. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm preaching. And, and about 15 minutes later, because I had the Wi-Fi on on my iPad, I see a text message come through from my wife. And she said, hey, hey Russ, I, I'm, I'm at the emergency room. I'm bleeding. We lost the baby. I'm in the middle of my Sunday morning sermon. I'm looking out at the crowd of people staring at me. I'm teaching on hardship and endurance and perseverance and giving your yes to Jesus and no turning back. And in the middle of it, I'm getting text message updates from my wife at the emergency room letting me know that, that we had lost the baby. Not only would we lose that one, we, we would lose the next one. My wife would end up on chemotherapy. The doctor said, you will never have a baby again. God, by his grace, gave us two more. We have three children today. But from day one, and, and I feel like I, I'm safe saying this here because I imagine it's the same for this church. Like We're just unapologetic about believing in signs, wonders, and miracles because the gospel without power is not good news. It is good news to the sick because it makes them healed. It is good no news to those in bondage because it makes them free. It is good news to the poor because it makes them rich. Like the gospel is good news because it has the power to transform your life. That's why it's good news. It's not good in theory. It's not good just in philosophy. It's not just good in intellect. It's good news because it has the power to transform your actual real life. <laughs> And so in that season, I had to make a decision because I knew that we had several other families in our congregation struggling with infertility. And I had to make a decision on what to do with my pain. And instead of building an altar to my pain, I had to allow it to be the leverage for a sacrifice of praise that I would give Jesus. And over that next 18-month period, I can't tell you how many couples we prayed for who were not able to conceive, who by God's spirit, miracle working power, were able to conceive and deliver healthy babies, all the while my wife and I struggled. And I, I don't know about you, but that's a hard position to be in. Everybody else is getting a miracle, why not me? 
I'm the one preaching this stuff, praying for folks. It's happening for everyone around me, and why not me. And I think in our human temptation, we try to reduce it to formulas. Maybe if I prayed more, maybe if I do two chapters a day in the Bible instead of one, maybe if my tithe goes to 12% instead of 10, we're trying to fix the problem and God's trying to fix us. And God's after something so much deeper than just whether or not we get the miracle when we want the miracle. He's after something deeper. He's after the heart. And just before I begin this evening, I just I share the story just about every time I preach. But but just let me challenge you tonight. What most unites us in this room, outside of the presence of God, who makes us one, we're in the family of God together. The other thing that most unites us in this room is that we all have pain that we don't have rational answers for. And if your faith only lasts until the moment of your first unexplained crisis, then you are only one unexplainable event away from shipwrecking your faith. And I would plead with you tonight, by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, give your pain to Jesus. No, friend, the cross does not promise you a pain-free life. The cross does not eliminate your pain. But if you let it, it will give purpose to your pain. And what if the purpose of the painful stuff that you have walked through is to inspire hope and healing and health in the life of somebody else? Isn't this what Paul says? He said, it was work and death in me but it was work and life in you. I carried death in me, but it was provoking resurrection power in you. And this is why he tells Timothy, no, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's, I'm not ashamed of the scars that are on my back. They're actually what speaks to my apostleship. No, I am not ashamed of the chains that I have. Watch the conflict that I have and watch it produce something inside of you. What if the greatest testimony you ever will have in your life is a James 1 testimony that when all hell came against me and persecutions and tribulations and trials and circumstances I kept my faith I kept my peace I kept my joy oh there was hard days and there was dark nights of the soul where I didn't know if I could wake up the next day and face what that day would bring but God by his grace sustained me and I was faithful to the high call of God and friend what if that's the most impactful thing that you could gather from tonight A God who is so much more worthy than you have ever dared to give him credit for. It is terrifying how good this God is. I think sometimes in the charismatic movement, I've been guilty of this time or two in my life, but I think sometimes so casually we talk about like encounters with God. Like, oh yeah, you know, seven angels visited me last night. It was pretty cool. We're just hanging out, eating Oreos, you know. Every time like an angel would show up in scripture, the response is fear and trembling, falling down as dead men. And I just feel like when God walks in the room and when his reverence begins to do a work in your life, you know, the response is, is it, it, it's, it's deeper than our human capacity for emotion. 
It's overwhelming in such an existential sense that our only response is to bow low in reverence and say, God, you can have it all again and again and again. And one of the most powerful and precious things that the body of Christ has in this season is the opportunity for our woundedness not to be the thing that causes us to deconstruct, not to be the thing that causes us to walk away, but to be the thing that testifies to the healing virtue and power of Christ. Watch the interaction. I need to start preaching because it's going to be a long night, but watch the interaction that Jesus has with Doubting Thomas. And I love Doubting Thomas. It doesn't say unbelieving. It doesn't say prodigal. It says doubting. And maybe one of the most honest reflections of what real faith is, is when Jesus has interaction with a man who needs a miracle for his family, and he says, do you have faith? And the man responds, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm like, man, God can't fix what you fake, number one. Number two, God already knows what's true, so just be honest. Yeah, God, there are some days I believe. And then there are some days that I really struggle with unbelief, but at the end of the day, I'm parking my questions and my pain at the foot of the cross. Now watch, Jesus walks, walks through the walls into the room. He approaches doubting Thomas. And he says, you know, blessed are those who, who, who do not see and, and still believe. But he says, Thomas, why don't you come over here? I love this. He says, reach your hands into my wounds. And Thomas reaches into the woundedness of Christ and pulls out belief that heals his wounded heart. And what if what scripture says is true? The testimony of Jesus is what? I think it's Revelation 19, the spirit of prophecy. And what if the testimony of your wounds that you've experienced is what God will use in the life of somebody else that as they reach into your story, as they reach into your heartache, as they reach into your miscarriage, as they reach into your divorce, as they reach into your childhood abuse, as they reach into your bankruptcy, as they reach into your faith crisis, as they reach into your sickness, as they reach into your fill in the blank, what they pull out is healing for their own life. And that's why this this message is, is so important. We built an entire economy that monetizes pain. Most of our world is running around with a GoFundMe spirit of infirmity. We'd rather be noticed for our pain than healed from our pain. That's why Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? Because if we were to be honest, most of us have gotten so used to the dysfunction of what we've carried around, it's become a security blanket that we don't know how to operate without. Do you really want to be made well? It seems like a dumb question, but it's not. Because we've got a sick culture around us. And the reality is, it's as true today as it's ever been. A lot of them don't even want to be made well. And maybe, just maybe, God could use the power of your story and the power of your narrative to be the thing that somebody who is so confused and lost and overwhelmed and suicidal and depressed, they could reach into your story and pull out healing virtue for themselves. Hey, this evening, uh, I want to share uh, out of uh, Acts 2, which will be a familiar uh, passage of Scripture for many of you in this room. Um, and I want to share it from the, from, from the perspective of, of, of not just 
the historicity of what the book of Acts records. You know, Acts is, is written by a Gentile physician, Dr. Luke. And it's the actions of the apostles. He tells us the history of, of the New Testament church. And I think one of the tragedies of modern day Bible reading is that oftentimes we kind of apply these, these historical lenses. And so we view this as kind of like a, a manual or a textbook or a recording of what was instead of a blueprint for what should be today. So we look at stuff back then, we go, well, that's how God worked back then, you know, because like the apostles really needed it in the first century. You know, they really needed signs and wonders back then. But, you know, come on, today we've got the power of technology. And we, it's like, like the ancient world needed miracles, but the modern world doesn't. Or this is my favorite one. Well, like they need it overseas, like in Africa, you know. Like they really need it over there. But like here in the West, you know, it's more just like teaching. And the problem is that what we have developed is a form of godliness that denies the power there within. And it doesn't matter how fancy the wineskin is. If you don't have wine, the wineskin is useless. It's a whitewashed tomb filled with dead men's bones. It's actually worse than useless. It gives people the appearance of spirituality. But actually what they carry around with them is the deadness of religion. And so when I talk about Acts 2 this evening, this is not just in a historical sense, like a museum. Like, isn't it interesting to observe what God has done? No, God by his spirit is still doing this today. And he's still doing it to people who have eyes to see and ears to hear. People who respond to the invitation of the ages. The spirit and the bride say, come. They invite us to the banqueting table of the lamb. And so it, 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 is, it is a tragedy to reduce scripture to simply a historical retelling of things that happened in ancient cultures to ancient people. See, the God that we serve is outside of the time-space continuum. All of time and space bows in reverence to the name of, to the name of Jesus. He, he was, and he is, and he is to come. He is the uncaused cause. He was there before there was a beginning. He will be there after there is an ending, and there is no way for us to quantify that with our human faculties. But if God is outside of time, and inside of time at the same time, then what that means is that what the Spirit reveals to us through the written text, the retelling of the action of the apostles, it actually serves as the baseline for how we ought to be operating today. And here's my conviction. If we want New Testament power, we have to return to New Testament practice. It don't matter how fancy the lights are and the screens are and the LEDs and the smoke screens and the tricks and the tactics and the arc models. Listen, Oh, that's fine and good and whatever. <clears throat> but I think one of the problems we have in the Western church is the stage has grown, but the altars have shrunk. <clears throat> and if we want New Testament power, I didn't say we have to return to New Testament personalities. I said we have to return to New Testament practice. And aren't you thankful that God factored in every mistake you would ever make and still put his anointing and calling on your life? He factored in every stupid thing you would do and think. And there's a lot of stuff that's dumb in your future that you will do that you don't even know about. And God saw it in eternity past. And he still said, let me put my calling and my anointing, which is irrevocable and without repentance. Let me put it on you. And that's good news for you and I today. Acts 2 is, 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 is recording an event that happens, but let me give you some, some context this evening. Over the last 50 days, the disciples have experienced the most wild story ever recorded in all of human history. They've seen Christ crucified. 
They have seen him resurrected, walking through walls, appearing to many witnesses. The graves in Jerusalem have opened up as saints of old have walked the streets. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a witness to those events? And that takes us to Acts 1. The disciples are about to see Jesus ascend into heaven, received by a company of angels. But just prior to his ascension, he leaves them with one final set of specific instructions whose impact is still being felt 2,000 years later. And that is where we begin this evening in Acts 1, starting in verse 4. This is what the scriptures say. And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, watch, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Now, let me stop there for a moment, just make a few observations that I think may be helpful for you tonight. The first miracle of Acts 1 isn't the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the second miracle. The first miracle is that the disciples managed to be assembled together in the same room at the same time with the same focus. Now watch. The same disciples who argued amongst themselves saying, who is the greatest? The same disciples who never understood the parables tried to call fire down on the Samaritans and tried to keep the little children from coming to Christ. The same disciples who betrayed him, left him, fell asleep in the garden, walked away when it was difficult. The same men were in the same place at the same time with the same spirit, all contending for the same thing. See, that's the power of unifying in faith around a promise from the Father. Hear me. The strength of the church is not found in the diversity of its staff, but instead the unity of its spirit. See, when we have unity, God commands a blessing. And any place that God commands a blessing, watch, it attracts a diversity of people. Diversity for the sake of diversity is chaos, but unity for the sake of blessing is biblical. Now watch, a pile of bricks doesn't make a wall. A pile of lumber doesn't make a house. A pile of glass doesn't make a window. And a pile of Christians don't make a church. Why? Because in order for there to be purpose to the individual parts, there is some assembly required. And here's the reality. Just because you're together don't mean you're united. And until you are united, the fullness of God's purpose can't be revealed. Now watch. A church that is gathered but not united doesn't have the power to address any of the problems they identify. A church that is gathered but not united doesn't have the authority to heal sickness or cast out demons. A church that is gathered but not united doesn't bring glory to God because instead of a choir of worship, what we offer is an out-of-order praise that sounds like confusion. But when an assembled or a united church gathers, it is not the size of the crowd, but instead the strength of their unity that causes all of hell to shake. I'd rather be assembled with a few than divided with many. Watch, it's not that God won't bless division. He can't. It's a violation of his nature. And isn't that the danger of church today? We're together, but it doesn't presuppose that we're united. 
Now watch what the Apostle Paul appeals to the early church to do. Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for restoration, encourage one another, and be of one mind. Philippians 2 and 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Notice the pattern? Watch. Unity commands a blessing. Unity commands an anointing, and unity commands an authority. Unity isn't just a good idea. It is the key building block to the New Testament church. I want to do an exercise with you this evening on the count of three. I want the folks here who are in this room, I want you to shout out your favorite animal. I'm not meaning dog or cat or anything simple like that, but just think exotic, whatever animal you want. On the count of three, whatever animal you're having on your mind, you're thinking, you see it on the National Geographic channel, whatever it is, whatever animal, favorite animal that comes to your mind, on the count of three, I want you to shout it out. Here we go, one, here we go, two, here we go, three. Okay, awesome. Now, I didn't understand not one thing any of you just said. I know all of you said something, but I couldn't discern one thing that any individual said. But just for a moment, could you humor me tonight by pretending that just for a moment, our favorite animal, everyone in this room, our favorite animal is an alligator. Now on the count of three, I don't want you to shout it, but I I just want you to whisper it. We're all going to agree that our favorite animal is an alligator. Even if it's not, just pretend. And on the count of three, I don't want you to shout it. I just want you to whisper it. Now watch what happens. One, two, three. Now watch. When we have unity, we don't need to rely on volume to convince people of our authority. Authority isn't a volume issue. It's a unity issue. Watch what Jesus says. It ticks off the religious people. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen. He says, I and the Father are one. Paul calls him the express image. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. When Jesus is left alone in the temple at the age of 12, and his parents finally find him, he says, don't you know, I must be about my Father's business. Watch verse 5. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's important for you to understand today that the Holy Spirit isn't some new age mystical force that travels around the universe sending nice thoughts to sick loved ones. This isn't good vibes. This isn't positive energy. You know, our, our new age synchristic culture has reduced the Holy Spirit to like the rubbing together of magic crystals and I'm sending vibes. I see this all the time online. Somebody says, I'm sick on Instagram, sending good thoughts. What does that mean? What do you mean you're sending good thoughts? Sending good thoughts has never raised a sick person out of their bed. Sending good thoughts did not raise Jesus out of the grave. And sometimes like in in an effort to like be missional, what we do is we actually lose the war for definitions by downgrading biblical realities to appeal to pagans. What? No, the Holy Spirit is not some sort of mystical force. It's not some mystery fart traveling around the universe doing stuff that we don't understand. No, 
No, the Holy Spirit is God. And anywhere he is welcomed, he displays his power. And it is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are regenerated, which means born again, sanctified, which means made holy, justified, which means made right, and we are filled with power for present day living. Now watch, if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is already active in your life. And you need him more than you think you do. Somebody said, well, I need the Holy Spirit to get into heaven. You need the Holy Spirit to go out in public. You need the Holy Spirit to go through TSA at the airport. Hear me, the gospel is not just a more talented version of a TED Talk with the name Jesus thrown in every once in a while. It is a life-shattering decision to lose your life for his sake that you may find it. You know, in the Greek, the word baptism is baptizo. It means to be fully immersed and submerged. Watch until an individual is overwhelmed by that which they are being baptized into. The disciples are already saved. Disciples already got the Holy Spirit, which seals us until the day of final salvation. But Jesus tells them something very interesting. He tells them to wait until they receive the promise because the Holy Spirit, watch, who is in them is also coming upon them. And they will receive power like they've never had before. Now watch verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. It is amazing to me, after all this time, that disciples still think Jesus is talking political. When will we get, when will we get our power back? When will we get our country back? <clears throat> when are you going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem? That's what we were disappointed in when you died. We thought you was the military victor to give us back our temple, restore our ability to do sacrifices, give us a high priest. That's what we were wanting. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't say he won't. He says, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is you receiving power not just to transform Jerusalem, but the world around you. Now hear me, the Holy Spirit isn't political because he isn't taking sides, he is taking over. Political power might change someone's mind, but only supernatural power can regenerate their spirit. See, the king we serve wasn't voted in and he cannot be voted out. And if you think the Holy Spirit's power is dependent on having the right guy or gal in office, you have seriously misunderstood this book. It's interesting to me, sometimes in the West, we attach like these eschatological hopes to whoever wins the next election. Like, like Jesus in heaven was like, I really wanted to pour out revival in San Jose, but oh man, they got Biden in there. Ugh. Newsom, I can't do anything if Newsom's in there, man. And I'm like, the history of revival from Old Testament to New Testament, and even over the last 2,000 years of church history, the history of these great moves of God's spirit, they have almost always happened during times of great political calamity, cultural calamity, you name it, in the midst of chaos, that's where God's light best shines. And so sometimes we're like projecting onto exterior structures. Like if we could just get this one thing to change, 
then really that would like usher in the new wave of what God desires to do. And I think God in heaven, like I think God's concerned about elections. I think you got to vote right and think right and have the right worldview and be discipled and all sorts of things. We believe in all of that stuff. But the reality is, is that the God that we serve, it's not a democracy in heaven. You know, if you were to die tonight, like you don't get to heaven, you don't, you don't get to vote on whether you want gold streets or silver streets. There, there's no voting in heaven. His, his position is not up for re-election. And when God says it's time, it's time. And here's why I'm excited to partner with you in faith. Here's why I'm excited to be alive in this season, because I hear the Spirit saying, it's time. And if you will raise your sails, you will catch the wind that is already blowing. Now watch. Jesus says this in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I want you to see this. Getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is is not so that you can add a line to your LinkedIn spiritual resume. If you don't become an explosive witness after you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure what you were baptized into, but it wasn't this. It's not just about getting Holy Ghost goosebumps, and I like those, okay? It's not just about getting personally ministered to, and I receive that, and that happens all the time, and that'll happen for many of you this evening. But the reality is, is when you get baptized in, in Holy Spirit power, it is with a missiological emphasis meaning that what God does is he empowers you to see the world around you as he sees them. Like Jesus is ministering to a woman at the well in John 4. Where are the disciples? Eating lunch. Why? Because Jesus sees the Samaritan woman in a way that none of the other 12 disciples could see. And when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, it changes the lens by which you view the natural world. All of a sudden, what you begin to recognize is everywhere I go, there may be somebody that God is placing right in my path with a divine opportunity for me to be used to plant a seed in that soil. Now, may I lead them to the sinner's prayer every time I witness? No, maybe not. But the reality is, is I'm going to plant a seed. Somebody else is going to water it, and God's going to bring the increase. And this is what Paul tells the church when they get all offended about who they're going to choose. He says, some are with Apollo, some are with Paul. He said, one man plant, another man water, but God brings the increase. So stop worrying about who's going to get credit for getting them across the finish line. That's God's job, not yours. You're in sales. He's in management. Let him take care of that. Just, just be obedient. What success looks like is obedience. I'm going to be obedient. And I don't know if this is the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, whatever time, but the reality is, is when the disciples get filled, it's not just for, for them to feel good and, and have a personal manifestation themselves. It's for them to be a dynamic witness. Now watch, the Holy Spirit is in you, but if you wait, his power will come upon you, and you will be witnesses everywhere you go of the things that you have seen and experienced. Now watch this. If you want to be an ongoing witness, you need to have an ongoing encounter. If you want to be an ongoing witness, you need to be an ongoing encounter. And every time I teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking to two types of people. I'm talking to people who have never experienced that, or I'm talking to a room where people in the room have experienced that. And this is the cataclysmic failure of people when they hear this message. If they've already experienced this, they go, well, already checked that box, and that's the problem. You think this is a box to check instead of a life to live. 
I already got that. Yeah, me too. When I was 12, I got that too. But here's what I've recognized. He is the fount that never runs dry. And there's a reason why the disciples get baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And in Acts 4, the Spirit comes in the room, shakes it again. They get baptized all over again. Why? Not because the first time wasn't enough, but because God is interested in ongoing, experiential, submerging into his reality. Some of us think like, well, I got everything I need, but you know, I said the sinner's prayer and I checked all the boxes and the fourfold plan of salvation. And the, the reality is, is that it, it, if God was done with you at the moment you got saved, then you would have just been raptured right after the, the sinner's prayer. But he left you here on purpose, with purpose, to do something about the condition of the world around you. So you can live the rest of your life complaining how dark the darkness is, or you can, I don't know, turn on a light. You are here to turn on a light in Silicon Valley. You are here to turn on a light all over Southern California. And how you do that is not just by having the Holy Spirit in you, but having the Holy Spirit upon you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet until what you experience is reflective of what Jesus promises in John 7, where on the last day of the great feast, he stands up with a loud voice and he declares, all those who believe will receive and out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And these things Jesus spoke concerning the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given. Jesus has been prophesying about this a long time. I'm going to send you the paraclete. I'm going to send you the comforter. I have to go that another may come. Now watch. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, it was all together in one place. Suddenly a sound. Interesting. A sound. Like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them was filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now I'm almost done. Now watch. Pentecost was a feast, hear me, that celebrated the giving of the law to Moses. And Jewish folks from around the world would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. City was packed. Streets was bustling. People are celebrating. The leaders are commemorating. The people are honoring the day that Moses received the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And right in the middle of the city is a group of 120 people who have managed to tap into the first miracle. Being assembled together in one place in one mind, with one purpose, and one spirit. They're gathered in an upper room. They singing, they praying, they eating, they're drinking, they're waiting, they're watching, they're looking, and they're wondering. Can you imagine the conversations that they're having in that room in between the time that Jesus said it was coming and the time that they received? Jesus said to wait, but for how long? He didn't say. He said it was a promise. He said we'd be marked by power and fire. When's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? Do you think maybe he's forgotten? Do you think it was like metaphysical? We're not really going to experience, but we might experience it. Is it really for us? And in the middle of the hustle and bustle of their eager expectation, the Bible records in verse 2, suddenly there was a sound. Now hear me. At Bethlehem, he was God with us. At Calvary, he was God for us. But at Pentecost, he was God in us. The promise of the Holy Spirit had arrived and it came wrapped in a sound. It sounded like wind. It felt violent as it filled the room. It appeared as fire on their heads. 
and it rested upon each of them. I want you to see this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for a select few. It is not for those who have somehow figured it all out or successfully graduated out of their last discipleship internship. It is for sons and daughters. It is for men servants and maid servants. It is for young and old. It is for Jew and Gentile. It is for male and female. It is for rich and poor, married and single. It is for newly saved folks and folks who have been saved forever. The 120 who were gathered in Acts 2 didn't have to pass a spiritual gift test to gain entrance into the upper room. They gathered and God responded. They showed up and God showed off. They were in unity and God responded with anointing you don't need to wonder if you have the gift friend you've got the giver and that more than qualifies you to receive and that sound still fills the church today it is a blowing wind it is a weighty presence it rests on each who ask please don't miss this point The Holy Spirit does not land on a select few for the sake of public ministry. He rests on 120 who are gathered in a place, and in that moment, they are commissioned to be witnesses of what they've seen. I think one of the problems with with witnessing in, in the modern church context is we're asking people to be witnesses of what they have heard, but not what they have seen. I so appreciated what what your pastor was saying tonight. Hey, man, we was watching all them YouTube videos, all them revival things. and I'm thinking, man, that's been my prayer too. God, give us a story of our own. Your hunger can only be satiated so long by stories of what was until God stirs a hunger in you. God, give me a story of my own. Man, when we planted, we knew less than nothing. People look at the success of the church and they're like, how did you do it? And I go, please don't copy anything we tried. It was backwards. It was against every model. We made so many mistakes. But I'll tell you what we had. We had a hunger and a thirst that drove us to the throne room, attached us to the hem of his garment, and a desperate cry that said, we're not letting go until virtue flows out of you into us. There is a faith that puts a demand on only what heaven provides. I don't want to just be a witness of what I've heard. My conviction is I'm going to raise my children in revival. So by the time that they're ready to lead this thing or go live their own lives or infiltrate any sphere of society that God calls them to, here's what we owe the the last generation. We owe them the honor of running further than they could. And here's what we owe the next generation, an inheritance of revival that is not so far away in their review mirror that they gotta go look at it on YouTube to figure out what it was like. No, do you understand what's happening here? No, God has visited us with a generational, sacred obligation to so steward his presence and his anointing that bold church doesn't just become a place that is visited by God's presence, but that it so hosts an encounter with God that your children's children know that he still moves in power. He still heals the sick. He still raises the dead. And he still seeks and saves the lost. No, it's not just a story. I was raised in it. Do we not 
churches. No more meaningless religious experiences. No, we are people who were created to come alive in the presence. And this is who we are. This is always who we've been. This is how the New Testament church was birthed. Oh, can't you see it, friend? This is the blueprint for who we are. When you gave your life to Christ, he downloaded in your heart a hunger for things that human words cannot express. And I want you to know when the Spirit of God gets poured out on your life in a fresh and in a new way, what it enables you to do is to communicate with God in ways that you have never communicated with him before. Now watch. Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. He said, fellow Jews, all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now watch what Peter is saying. He says, what you're experiencing right now is what was prophesied back then. He says, this is that. Now watch. In 800 B.C., God raised up a prophet named Joel who declared to God's people there is coming a day where God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And when that happens, it will signify that a new day of covenant has begun and all of those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This moment is that prophecy. This moment is that scripture. This room is different. We ain't in Jerusalem, but it is the same spirit. It is the same promise. It is the same experience because the God who filled back then is still filling today. This isn't a new phenomenon. It's an old one. It has always been in the heart of God to pour out his spirit on all flesh. You could have been born at any moment in history, but you just so happen to be alive in this one, which means you are qualified to be a partaker in the prophetic fulfillment of what Joel saw 2,800 years ago. And I love the response of the crowd. Y'all are drunk. They thought Hannah was drunk when she prayed in the temple. They thought David was crazy when he danced before the Lord. They thought Joseph was nuts when he kept having dreams. They thought Nehemiah was an idiot when he set out to rebuild the temple. Watch the pattern. The world has no context for transcendent love or extravagant faith. So when they don't understand it, they accuse you of being what they are, unwell and out of their mind. And watch, the Holy Spirit doesn't just baptize one select people at one select time and then stop for the rest of history. But the pattern of the book of Acts is that when people gather and they ask, God responds with the promise. My favorite telling of the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes from Acts 19. The apostle Paul finds disciples in Ephesus and he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? They say, we haven't even heard. He said, who baptized you? So John, ah, that's the problem. Let me explain. So he explains. He lays his hands on them. They receive the baptism. They speak in tongues. He baptizes them again. And the church work in Ephesus begins to explode. I just believe that that same God who, who worked in power back then is, is working today. I know that there is some controversy around speaking in tongues because Anything that offends our, our natural mind creates stumbling blocks for our faith. <clears throat> but the reason why God does things that you don't understand is to prove that he's in control, not you. 
Think about all the times that Jesus heals different people in different ways all throughout the New Testament. Sometimes he speaks a word. Other times he lays hands on people. Other times he spits in the mud. Other times people grab a hold of him. All sorts of different miracles. I think the reason why Jesus does that is to throw us off. Because if he always healed people in the same way, what we do is we develop a formula and then sell a book. And in fact, Jesus is more creative than you. And oftentimes he does things that bypass our human context for understanding. The Bible says they spoke in unknown languages. They spoke in tongues. The apostle Paul actually unpacks this as he speaks to the church in Corinth and he explains to them all of the ways and the context in which speaking in tongues is used in a biblical context. I, I, I just believe and, and have faith uh, for you this evening that this experience uh, is, is available to you. And so in a moment, uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to invite you forward and we're going to lay hands on folks and pray and, and, and just believe. And like I said earlier, there's, there's two groups of people in here tonight. There's people who say, Pastor, I've already received that experience. I got my prayer language. Yabba dabba do. Awesome. Okay. Well, but here's the good news. There's more for you. There's more for you. And listen, you don't get a gold star by your name in heaven because you speak in tongues. But there's more for you. Okay. But there's also groups of folks in here and you might go, hey, I've heard this taught on before, or, or maybe I've even prayed for this before, but I just haven't yet received. Well, friend, tonight's your night. And so let's pray again. Let's believe again. Let's contend again. And let's just see, it's not the maybe of the Father. It's not the kind of if you're good enough of the Father. It's the promise of the Father. What I found oftentimes is the biggest barrier for people to receive their prayer language is oftentimes bad teaching or high pressure environments. And, and this is neither of those places. I think this is solid teaching and I'm not a high pressure type individual, but I, 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 can, I can promise you this. Sometimes when I'm praying for po- folks at the altar, how they expect God to fill them and for that new language to come from them is counterintuitive to the way that God works. <clears throat> because the God that we serve I believe, doesn't violate your free will or your volition. So sometimes what people expect is that God's going to reach up inside of me like a sock puppet and he's going to move my tongue just like this. And that's how I know it's real. That's about the dumbest thing I ever heard. Now let me tell you why. Because we use our faith for everything. You know, when I get up here and preach, it's the result of hours of teaching, hours of studying, hours of prayer. But I don't black out when I get on stage. And then I wake up at the hotel room and I go, whoa, that was a crazy experience. No. I'm using my faith to formulate sentences in the English language to communicate to you what I believe the Bible teaches. And I think sometimes for us, when it when it applies to other ways that God works. What we want is we want God to do all the work for us. And then when he doesn't, we want to get offended. And I want you to to know tonight that that when I pray for you, I'm going to pray for you in English. Okay. I'm going to pray for you the promise of John 7 and the reality of Acts 2. And then after I get done praying for you in English, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray in tongues. And this is what I'm going to ask you to do. When I pray in tongues, I'm going to ask you to pray in tongues. And you might go, well, how's that going to work? Like, where do I start? I don't know. But I know this. It's impossible to please God without faith. And I know you got to start somewhere. So when I tell people, start with the first thing come to your mind. Start with the first thing come to your heart. When I was 12 years old, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit at church in Seattle. When I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I kid you not, I sound like a car trying to turn over. For real. They pray for me. I said, okay, here we go. I said, I don't know what this is. This ain't God. I don't know what this is. It's weird. So I'll keep praying, brother. I did. 
kept praying, kept praying, kept praying. <clears throat> but it was an act of my will. It was an act of my, it was, it was a free will choice, decision. You know, I've been in environments before. It's like people are reaching into people's mouths, doing all weird stuff. I'm like, why are you doing that? I, I'm going to lead you to water. Whether or not you want to drink is your decision, not mine. <clears throat> but I tell you this, it starts somewhere. And it started at that altar. You know what it sounded like? And you know what God did? He honored a small beginning. He honored a mustard seed of faith. And I stayed at that altar until I started praying. And pretty soon, what a river began to flow. You ever seen a river begin to flow? I didn't say a river flow. You ever seen a river begin to flow? It start with a trickle. And then a stream. And then it increases and increases and increases. And pretty soon, it's a river. See, here's the problem. What we want is fully developed gifts. Gifts are free. Development is costly. And you know what the development of tongues will cost you? Your pride, your intellect, and your understanding. And you can have that. Or you can have a baptism of God's power. And listen, I believe in the development of your intellect. This is not like an anti-thinking message. Just don't think about it. No, we, we need deep thinkers in our movement. That's part of the reason why I wanted to speak at this conference because my friend Chris Palmer is here, Nathan Finocchio is here. Listen, what they're doing with Theosu is the most important theological contrib contribution to our movement in the last 50 years, easily. One of the best things that you could do for your faith is get a subscription to Theosu. I promise you. No, this is not like an anti-education. No, I'm in the final stages of my own PhD. I believe in this stuff. But what I'm telling you is that at the end of the day, I'm not building an altar to what I can understand because the God I serve does not fit within the framework of what I understand. I fit within the framework of what he understands and his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are high above. And so we want to fit within his framework. It's mystical. It's a mystery. Well, how do I know what I'm saying? You don't. Paul says, when you speak in tongues, you speak mysteries to God. He says, your mind is unfruitful. But here's the beauty. The older I get, the less I know what to pray for. I pray for every missionary I know, every animal I own, every kid I have, every person in church I'm, I'm not angry at. It, you know. And by the time I'm done, I pray 48 seconds. So you know what I do? I go to my prayer closet. I pray in the spirit. And I build myself up in the most holy faith. And I brought some books with me. Y'all can just give them away or, or, or whatever. I just make them available as resources. But I just talk people through the basics of the baptism. And I don't have time to get into it tonight. I'll be here four hours. But I, in, in the back of the book, I give you eight practical reasons from scripture why you should pray in the spirit. I just believe in this stuff. I just believe in this stuff. And, uh, you know, praying in the Spirit uh, and, and praying in tongues, that's not the be-all, end-all for getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I believe that it exists as a primary evidence that God is doing something unique, special in your life and opening you up to even more giftedness, opening you up to even more dynamic power, opening you up to even more witness opportunities. And look, <clears throat> if the Bible teaches it, I want it, even if other people don't understand it. That's my conviction. I want to go after it. Come on, would you stand as we close? Hey, thank you again for listening to today's message. If you found today's sermon encouraging, inspiring, would you consider subscribing to this podcast? That way you won't miss the next word that's coming. See you next time.